Writings of Joseph Smith, too. A Pearl Great Price by Joseph Smith. This River Fox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Glen O'Brien. www.glenobrien.net. Writings of Joseph Smith, too. Extracts from the History of Joseph Smith. Owing to the many reports which have been put in circulation by evil disposed and designing persons in relation to the wise and progress of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints, all of which have been designed by the authors thereof to militate against its character as a church and its progress in the world, I have been induced to write this history, to disabuse the public mind, and put all inquirers after truth in possession of the facts, as they have transpired, in relation both to myself and to the church, so far as I have such facts in my possession. In this history, I shall present the various events in relation to this church, in truth and righteousness, as they have transpired, or as they at present exist, being now the eighth year since the organization of the said church. I was born in the year of our Lord 1805, on the twenty third day of December, in Tel Shawan, Wensakai, Stair Vermont. My father, Joseph Smith, Sr., was the Stair Vermont, married to Pamira, Ontario, now Wayne County, in the state of New York, when I was in my tenth year of thereabouts. In about four years after my father's arrival from Pamira, he moved with his family into Manchester in the same county of Ontario. His family consists of eleven souls, namely, my father, Joseph Smith, my mother, Lucy Smith, whose name posed to her marriage was Mac, daughter of Solomon Mack, my brother's Alvin, who died on the 3rd 19th, 1824 in the 27th year of his age, Iram, myself, Samuel Harrison, William Don Carlos, and my sisters, Sophronia, Catherine, and Lucy. Sometime in the second year after our removal to Manchester, there was in the place where we lived an unusual excitement on the subject of religion. It commenced with the Methodists, but soon became general among all the sects in that region of country. Indeed, the old district of country seemed affected by it, and great multitudes united themselves to the different religious parties, which created no small stir and division amongst the people, some saying, Lo here, and others lo there. Some were contending for the Methodist faith, some for the Presbyterian, and some for the Baptist. But notwithstanding the great love which the converts these different faiths expressed at the time of the conversion, and the great still manifested by the respective clergy, who were active in gaining up and promoting this extraordinary scene for religious feeling, in order to have everybody converted, as they were pleased to call it, let them join what sect they pleased. Here when this converts began to fall off, some to one party and some to another, it was seen that the seemingly good feelings of both the priests and the converts were more pretended than real. For a scene of great confusion and bad faith ensued, priests contained against priests and convert against convert, so that all their good feelings went for another, if they ever had any, were entirely lost in the strife of words and the contest of other opinions. I was at this time my fifteenth year. My father's family were persuaded to the Presbyterian faith, and four of them joined their church, naming my mother Lucy, my brothers Iron and Samuel Harrison, and my sister Sophronia. During this time of great excitement, my mind was caught up to serious reflection and great uneasiness. But though my feelings were deep and unappointed, still I keep myself alone from all these pies, 
for I returned the several meetings as long as occasion would permit. In process of time, my mind became somewhat partial to the Methodist sect, and I felt some desire to be in eye with them. But so great were the confusion and strife among the different denominations, that it was impossible for a person young as I was, and so unacquainted with many things, to come to any certain conclusion it was right and it was wrong. My mind at times was greatly excited, and the cry and tumult was so great and unseasoned. The Presbyterians were most desired against the Baptists and Methodists, and used all the powers of either reason or sophistry to prove the errors, or at least to make the people think they were in error. On the other hand, the Baptists and the Methodists in their turn were equally in endeavouring to establish their own tenets and disprove all others. In the midst of this swath of words and tumult of opinions, I said to myself, what is to be done? Who will fall these price are right, or are they all wrong together? If any one of them be right, which is it, and how shall I know it? Whilst wavering under the extreme difficulties caused by the contents of these pies of the originists, I was one day when the, the Epistle of James, verse 7 and 5th verse, which reads, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and abideth of not, and it shall be given him. Never did any passage of scripture come with more power to the heart of man than this did at this time to mine. He seemed to enter with great force into every feeling of my heart. I reflected on it again and again, knowing that if any person needed wisdom from God, I did. For how to act I did not know, and unless I could get more wisdom than had, I would never know. For the teachers of religion of the different sects understood the same passages as the scriptures so differently as to destroy all confidence in settling the question by an appeal to the Bible. At length I came to the conclusion that I must either remain in darkness and confusion, or else I must do as James directs, that is, ask of God. I at length came to the determination to ask of God, concluding that if he gave wisdom to them that lacked wisdom, and would give liberally, and not upright, I might venture. So, in accordance with this, my determination to ask of God, I retired to the woods to make the attempt. It was on the morning of a beautiful clear day, early in the spring of 1820. It was the first time in my life that I had made such an attempt, for amidst all my anxieties I had never as yet made the attempt to pray folkery. After I had retired to the place where I had previously decided to go, having looked around me and found myself alone, I kneeled down and began to offer up the desires of my heart to God. I had scarcely done so, when immediately I was seized upon by some power which entirely overcame me, and had such an astonishing influence over me as to bind my tongue so that I could not speak. Thick darkness gathered around me, and it seemed to me for a time as if I were doomed to sudden destruction. But exerting all my powers to call upon God to deliver me out of the power of this enemy which had seized upon me, and at the very moment when I was ready to sink into despair and abandon myself to destruction, not to an imaginary ruin, but to the power of some actual being from the unseen world, who had such marvelous power as I had never before felt in any being, just at that moment of great alarm, I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head, above the brightness of the sun, which descended gradually until it fell upon me. 
it no sooner appeared than I found myself delivered from the enemy which held me bound. When the light rested upon me, I saw two personages, whose brightness and glory defy all description, standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved son, hear him. My object in getting to inquire of the Lord was to know which of all the sects was right, that I might know which to join. No sooner, therefore, did I get possession of myself, so as to be able to speak, than I asked the besiders who stood above me in the light, which of all the sects was right, in which I should join. I was answered that I might join none of them, but they were all wrong, and the besides who addressed me said that all their creeds were an abomination in his sight, that those professors were quite that, quote, they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They teach for doctrines the commandments of men, having a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. End quote. He again forbade me to join with any of them, and many other things did he say unto me, which I cannot write at this time. When I came to myself again, I found myself lying on my back, looking up into heaven. Some few days after I had this vision, I happened to be in company with one of the Methodist preachers, who was very active in the before-mentioned religious excitement, and conversing with him on the subject of religion, I took occasion to give him an account of the vision which I had had. I was greatly surprised at his behavior. He treated my communication only rightly, but with great contempt, saying, It was all the devil, that there were no such things as visions or revelations in these days, that all such things had ceased with the apostles, and that there would never be any more of them. I soon found however that my telling the story had excited a great deal of prejudice against me among professors of religion, and was the case of great persecution, which continued to increase. And though I was an obscure boy, I between fourteen and fifteen years of age, in my circumstances in life such as to make a boy of no consequence in the world, ye men of high standing would take notice sufficient to excite the public mind against me, and create a bare persecution, and this was common among all the sects, all in order to persecute me. It caused me serious repression then, and other than that since, how very strange it was that an obscure boy of a little over fourteen years of age and one, too, who was doomed to the necessity of attaining a scanty maintenance by steric labor, should be thought a character of sufficient importance to attract the attention of the great ones of the most popular sects of the day, and in a manner to create in them a spirit of the most bitter persecution and reviring. But strange or not, so it was, and it was only the cause of great sorrow to myself. However, it was nevertheless a fact that I had beheld a vision. I thought since that I felt much like Paul when he made his defense against Gina Graeber and related the account of the vision he had when he saw a light and heard a voice. But still there were but few who believed him. Some said he was dishonest, others said he was mad, and he was ridiculed and reviled. With all this did not destroy the reality of his vision. He had seen a vision, he knew he had, and though they should persecute him unto death, yet he knew, and would know to his greatest breath, 
that he had both seen a light, and heard a voice speaking unto him, and all the world could not make him think or believe otherwise. So it was with me. I had actually seen a light, and in the midst of that light I saw two personages, and they did in reality speak to me. And though I was hated and persecuted for saying that I had seen a vision, yet it was true. And while they were persecuting me, reviling me, and speaking all manner of evil against me falsely for so saying, I was said to say in my heart, Why persecute me for telling the truth? I have actually seen a vision, and who am I that I can withstand God? Or why does the world think to make me deny what I have actually seen? For I had seen a vision, I knew it, and I knew that God knew it, and I could not deny it, neither dared I do it. At least I knew that by so doing I would offend God and come under condemnation. I had now got my mind satisfied so far as the sectarian world was concerned, that it was not my duty to join with any of them, but to continue as I was until further directed. I had found the testimony of James to be true, that a man who lacked wisdom might ask of God and obtain and not be upbraided. I continued to pursue my current vocations in life until the 21st of September, 1823, all the time suffering severe persecution at the ends of all classes of men, both religious and irreligious, because I continued to affirm that I had seen a vision. During the space of time which intervened between the time I had the vision and the year 1823, having been forbidden to any of the religious sects of the day, and been a very tender years, and persecuted by those who ought to have been my friends, and to have treated me kindly, and if they supposed me to be deluded to have endeavoured in a proper and affectionate manner to have reclaimed me, I was set to all kinds of temptations, and mingling with all kinds of society, I frequently fell into many foolish errors, and displayed the weakness of youth, and the foibles of human nature, which I am sorry to say, led me to those temptations, offensive in the sight of God. In consequence of these things, all felt condemned for my weakness and imperfections. When on the evening of the above-mentioned 21st of September, after I had retired to my bed for the night, I betook myself to prayer and supplication to Almighty God for forgiveness of all my sins and follies, and also for a manifestation to me, that I might know of my state and standing before him. For I had full confidence to attain a divine manifestation, as I previously had one. While I was thus in the act of calling upon God, I discovered the light appearing in my room, which continued to increase until the room was quiet at noonday, when a military personage appeared in my bedside, standing in the air, for his feet did not touch the floor. He had on a loose robe of most exquisite whiteness. It was a whiteness beyond anything earthly I had ever seen, nor do I believe that any earthly thing could be made to appear so exceedingly white and brilliant. His hands were naked, and his arms also, a little above the wrist, so also were his feet naked, as were his legs, a little above the ankles. His head and neck were also bare. I could discover that he had no other clothing on base this robe, as it was open, so that I could see into his bosom. Not only was his robe exceedingly white, but his whole person was glorious beyond description, and his countenance truly white whitening. The wound was exceedingly light, but not so very bright as immediately around his person. 
When I first looked upon him, I was afraid, but the fear soon left me. He called me by name, and said unto me that he was a messenger sent from the presence of God to me, and that his name was Moroni, that God had a work for me to do, and that my name should be had for good and evil among all nations, kindreds, and tongues, or that it should be both good and evil spoken of among all people. He said there was a book deposited, written upon gold plates, giving an account of the former inhabitants of this continent, and the source from whence they sprang. He also said that the fullness of the everlasting gospel was contained in it, as well for the Saviour to the ancient inhabitants. Also, that there were two stones to sell bowels, and these stones, passed to a breastplate, commonly was called the Urim and Thummim, deposited with the plates. And the possession and use of these stones were what constituted seers in ancient or former times, and that God had prepared them for the purpose of transferring the book. After telling me these things, he commenced quoting the prophecies of the Old Testament. He first quoted part of the third chapter of Malachi, and he quoted also the fourth or last chapter of the same prophecy, though with a real variation from the way it reads in our Bibles. Instead of quoting the first verses of the books, he quoted it thus, For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as nothing, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall burn as double. For they that come shall burn them, saith the Lord of hosts, that each shall leave them neither root nor branch. He quoted the fifth verse thus, Behold, I will refer unto you the priesthood, but the hand of Elisha the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He also cried the next verse, don't we? And he shall plant in the hearts of the children the promises made to the fathers, and the hearts of the children shall turn to their fathers. If it were not so, the whole earth will be utterly wasted in this coming. He quoted the eleventh chapter of Isaiah, saying that it was about to be fulfilled. He quoted also the third chapter of Acts, twenty-second and verses, precisely as they say in the New Testament. He said that that brother was Christ, but the day had not yet come when they who would not hear his voice should be cut off from among the people, but soon would come. He also quoted the second chapter of Joel, from the twenty-eighth verse to the last. He also said that this was not yet fulfilled, but was soon to be. And he first said that the fullness of the Gentiles was soon to come in. He quoted many other passages of Scripture, and all many explanations which can't be mentioned here. Again he told me that when I get this place of which he had spoken, for the time that they should be attained was not yet fulfilled, I should not show them to any person. Neither the breastplate you the urine and thumb him. I those to whom I should be commanded to show them. If I did, I should be destroyed. When he was conversing with me about the plates, the fish was owned to my mind that I could see the place where the place was deposited, and that so clearly and distinctly that I knew the place again when I visited it. Out of this communication, I saw the light in the wind begin to gather immediately on the person of him who had been speaking to me, and he continued to do so until the room was again left dark, except just around him, when instantly I saw, as it were, a conjured open white hub into heaven and he ascended to it entirely disappeared, and the room was swept as it had been before this heavenly light had made its appearance. I lay musing on the singularity of the scene, 
and marveling greatly at what had been told to me by this extraordinary messenger. When in the midst of my meditation, I suddenly discovered that my room was again began to get lighted, and in an instant, as it were, the same every measure was again by my bedside. He commenced, and again related the very same things which he had done at his first visit, without the least variation, which having done, he informed me of great judgments which were coming upon the earth, with great desolations by famine, sword, and pestilence, and that these grievous judgments would come on the earth in this generation. Having read these things, he again ascended as he had done before. But this time, so deep were the impressions made on my mind, that they had fled from my eyes, and already overwhelmed in astonishment at what I had both seen and heard. But what was my surprise when again I brought the same messenger at my bedside, and him rehearsed or repeat over again to me the same things as before, and added a caution to me, told me the saint would try to tempt me, in consequence of the indigenous circumstances of my father's family, to get the place for the purpose of getting rich. This he forbade me, saying that I must have no other object in view of gaining the place but to glorify God, and must not be influenced by any other motive than that of burning his kingdom, otherwise I could not get them. After this third visit, he again ascended into heaven as before, and I was again left to ponder on the strangeness of what I had just experienced. When almost immediately after the heavenly messenger had descended from me for the third time, the cock crowed, and I found that day was approaching, so that our interviews must occupy the whole of that night. I shortly after I rose from my bed, and as usual went to the necessary labors of the day, but in attempting to work as at other times, I found my strength so exhausted as to render me entirely unable. My father, who was sleeping along with me, discovered something to be wrong with me, and told me to go home. I started with the intention of going to the house, but in attempting to cross the fence out of the field where we were, my stream entirely fell me, and I fell helpless on the ground, and for a time was quite unconscious of anything. The first thing that I can recollect was a voice speaking unto me, calling me by name. I looked up, and beheld the same messenger standing over my head, surrounded by liars before. He then again revealed unto me all that he had revealed to me the previous night, and commanded me to go to my father and tell him of the vision and commandments which I had received. I obeyed. I returned to my father in the field and rehearsed the whole matter to him. He replied to me that it was of God and told me to go and do as commanded by the messenger. I left the field and went to the place where the messenger had told me the place was deposited, and owing to the distinctness of the vision which I had had concerning it, I knew the place the instant that I arrived there. Convenient to the village of Manchester, Ontario, County, New York, such a hill of considerable size, and the most elevated of any in the neighborhood. On the west side of this hill, not far from the top, on a stone of considerable size, were the place deposited in the stone box. This stone was thick and running in the mill on the other side, and fitted towards edges, so the mill part of it was visible to the ground, for the edge all round was covered with earth. Having removed from the earth, I then a wafer, which I got fixed under the edge of the stone, and with the exertion raised it up. I looked in, and then did the behold the plates, the human thumb, and the best plate, as that of the messenger. 
The box in which they lay was formed by laying stones together in, in some kind of cement. And above the box away two stones crossways the box, and on these stones were the plates and other things with them. A man attempted to take them out, but was within the messenger, and was again informed that the time for bringing them forth had not yet arrived, never would it, until four years from that time, but he told me that I should come to that place precisely one year from that time, and that he would there meet with me, and that I should continue to do so until the time should come for attaining the praise. Accordingly, as I had been commanded, I went at the end of each year, and at each time I found the same messenger there, and received instruction and intelligence from him at each of our interviews, respecting what the world was going to do, and know in what manner his kingdom was to be conducted in the last days. As my father's worldly circumstances were very limited, we were under the necessity of wavering with our hands, hiring out by day's work and otherwise, as we could get opportunity. Sometimes we were at home, and sometimes abroad, and by continuous labor, we were unable to get the comfortable maintenance. In the year 1824, my father's family met with a great affliction by the death of my eldest brother, Alvin. In the month of October 1825, I hired with an old gentleman by the name of Josiah Stoll, who lived in Chenango County, State of New York. He had heard something of his silver mine having been opened by the Spaniards in Harmony, Susquehanna County, State of Pennsylvania, and had previous to my hour to him had been digging, in order, if possible, to discover the mine. After I went to live with him, he took me with the rest of his hands to dig for the silver mine, at which I continued to work for nearly a month without success in our undertaking, and finally I prevailed with the old gentleman to cease digging afterward. And the worst the very profound story of my having been a money digger. During the time that I was fast employed, I was put to board with a Mr. Isaac Hale of that place. It was there I first saw my wife, his daughter, Emma Hale. On the 18th of January, 1827, we were married, when I was yet employed in the service of Mr. Stoll. Owing to my continuing to assert that I had seen a vision, persecution still followed me, and my wife's father's family were very much opposed to our being married. I was therefore under the necessity of taking her elsewhere. So we went and were married at the house of Squire Tarbell in South Bainbridge, Chenango County, New York. Immediately after my marriage, I left Mr. Stoll's and went to my father's and found with him that season. At length, the time arrived for attaining the plates, the yeoman from him, and the breastplate. On the twenty-second day of September, one thousand eight hundred and twenty-seven, having gone as usual at the end of another year to a place where they were deposited, the same heavenly messenger delivered them up to me with this charge, that I should be responsible for them, that if I should let them go carelessly, or through any regret of mine, I should be cut off, but that if I would use all my endeavours to preserve them, until he, the messenger, should call for them, they should be protected. I soon found out the reason why I had received such strict charges to keep them safe, and why it was that the messenger had said that when I had done what was required in my hand, he would call for them. For no sooner was it known that I had had them, that the most strenuous exertions were used to get them from me. Every stratagem that could be invented was restored to for that purpose. 
the persecution became more bitter and severe than before, and all Jews one who worked continually to get them from me if possible. But by the wisdom of God, they remained safe in my hands, until I had accomplished by them what was required in my hand. When, according to my arrangements, the messenger called for them, I delivered them up to them, and he has them in his charge until this day, being the second day of May, 1838. The examiner of the weather still continued, and women with a thousand tongues were saw the time employed in circulating falsehoods about my father's family and about myself. If I were to away the thousandth part of them, he would fill up volumes. The persecution, however, became so intolerable that I was under the necessity of leaving Manchester and going with my wives to Susquehanna County, instead of Pennsylvania. Well prepared to start, being very poor, and the persecution so heavy upon us that there was no probability that we would ever be otherwise, in the midst of our afflictions, we found a friend in a gentleman by the name of Martin Howes, who came to us and gave me fifty dollars to assist us on our journey. Mr. Howells was a westerner from Myra Township, Wayne County, in South New York, and a farmer of respectability. By this timely aid was I enabled to reach the place of my destination, Pennsylvania, and immediately after my arrival there, I commenced copying the characters of the plates. I copied a considerable number of them, and by means of the urim and thummim, I transferred some of them, which I did between the time I arrived at the house of my wife's father, in the month of December, and the February following. Sometime in this month of February, the aforementioned Mr. Van Ellis came to our place, got the curtains which I had drawn off the plates, and started with them to the city of New York. For what took place relative to him and his curtains, I refer to his own account of the circumstances, as he related them to me at his return, which was as follows. I went to the city of New York, and presented the characters which had been transferred, with the translation thereof, to Professor Charles Anthem, a gentleman so brave for his literary attainments. Professor Anthem stated that the translation was correct, more so than any he had before seen translated from the Egyptian. I then showed him those which were not yet translated, and he said that they were Egyptian, Jodiac, Assyriac, and Arabic, and he said they were true characters. He gave me a certificate, certifying to the pair of Pamaya that they were true characters, and that the translation of such of them as had been transferred were also correct. I took the certificate and put it into my pocket, and was just leaving the house when Mr. Anthem called me back and asked me how the young man found out that there were gold plates in the place where he found them. I answered that an angel of God and revealed it unto him. He then said to me, let me see that certificate. I accordingly took it out of my pocket and gave it to him. When he took it and tore it to pieces, saying that there was no such thing now as ministering of angels, and that if I would bring the place to him, he would translate them. I informed him that part of the place was sealed, and that I was willing to bring them. He replied, I cannot read the sealed book. I left him and went to Dr. Mitchell, Essentially, what Professor Anthony had said was being but the characters and the translation. On the fifth day of April, 1829, Oliver Keltry came to my house, and to which time I had never seen him. 
is said to be that having been teaching school in the neighborhood where my father resided, and my father being one of those who sent to the school, he went to board for a season at his house, and while there, the family related to him the circumstance of my having received the plates, and accordingly, he had come to make inquiries of me. Two days after the arrival of Mr. Caltry, being the seventh faithful, I commenced to translate the Book of Mormon, and he began to wait for me. We still continued to work of translation, when in the ensuing month, May 1829, we on a certain day went into the woods to pray and inquire of the world respecting baptism for the remission of sins that we found mentioned in the translation of the plates. While we were thus employed, praying and calling upon the Lord, a messenger from heaven descended in the crowd of light, and never laid his hands upon us, he ordained us, saying, Upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of Messiah, I confirm the priesthood of Aaron, which holds the keys of the ministering of angels, and of the gospel of repentance, and of baptism by immersion for the remission of sins, and this shall never be taken again from the earth, until the sons of Levi do offer again an offering unto the Lord in righteousness. He said this ironic priesthood and not the power of weighing of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost, but that this should be conferred on us hereafter. And he commanded us to go and be baptized, and gave us directions that I should baptize all the country, and that afterwards he should baptize me. Accordingly, we went and were baptized. I baptized him first, and afterwards he baptized me. After which I laid my hands upon his head, and ordained him to the Aaronic priesthood. And afterwards he laid his hands on me, and ordained me to the same priesthood. For so we were commanded. The messenger who visited us on this occasion and conferred this priesthood upon us, said that his name was John, the same face called John the Baptist in the New Testament, and that he acted under the direction of Peter, James, and John, who heard the keys of the priesthood of Melchizedek, which priesthood, he said, would in due time be conferred on us, and that I should be called the first elder of the church, and he of Calgary the second. It was on the 15th day of May, 1829, that we were ordained under the hand of this messenger and baptized. Immediately on our coming up of the water, after we had been baptized, we experienced great and glorious blessings from our only Father. No sooner had I baptized over Caltry than the Holy Ghost fell upon him, and he stood up and prophesied many things which should surely come to pass. And again, so soon as I had been baptized by him, I also had the spirit of prophecy, when saying up, I prophesied concerning the wives of this church, and many other things connected with the church, and this generation of the children of men. We were filled with the Holy Ghost, and rejoiced in the God of our salvation. Our minds being now enlightened, we began to have the scriptures laid up open to our understandings, and the true meaning and intention of their more mysterious passages revealed unto us in a manner which we never could attain to previously, nor ever before had thought of. In the meantime, we were forced to keep secret the circumstances of having received the priesthood and our having been baptized, owing to a spirit of persecution which had already manifested itself in the neighborhood. We had been threatened with being nobbed from time to time, and this too by professors of religion. In their attention to mobbing us 
were only counteracted by the influence of my wife's father's family and divine providence, who had become very friendly to me, and who were opposed to mobs, and were willing that I should be allowed to continue the work of translation without interruption, and therefore offered and promised us protection from all unlawful proceedings, as far as in them lay. End of Lines of Joseph Spirit 2